All right. Hello and welcome to Pittsburgh Liberation Radio. This is a podcast brought to you by the members of the Pittsburgh branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. This is Nick here again as host, and today I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Claire Cohen. Claire is a pediatric or child psychiatrist here in the Pittsburgh area and is also a longtime organizer with a number of organizations and is currently very active with the National Single Payer and locally with Western PA Coalition for Single Payer. She is also a member of PNHP, which is Physicians for a National Healthcare Program. She is also, in my opinion, one of the best and most informed voices on these issues that we have in our city. So we're extremely excited to be able to get her perspective today. Claire, thank you for coming on the podcast. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Claire, just to kind of start off, I was hoping you could tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself, your work in particular with National Single Payer and locally with the Western Coalition for Single Payer. Okay, so I'm, as you said, I'm a child psychiatrist. I'm originally from Philadelphia. I did my, went to medical school in Philly Hahnemann, the one that was closed by the, by the uh, private equity guy. And then I um, did my general psychiatry training in, at the University of Chicago. And how I got to Pittsburgh was at that time, Western Psych supposedly had the, one of the top three child programs in the country. And that's how I got to Pittsburgh, which I'm going to be honest. The first week here, I cried every day, <laughs> and then I fell in love with Pittsburgh. So now I've been here forty years. We converted a Philly girl, huh? Yep. yep. <laughs> and and part of why I fell in love is there's great need and uh, a, a real lack of services. There's in if you're in Pittsburgh, you treat people from many different counties because the shortage of child psychiatrists is a shortage of child psychiatrists in the whole United States. But I have a friend. Who treats? Who's a child psychiatrist in the middle of the state? There's 67 counties in Pennsylvania. She's the psychiatrist for 25 counties. It's a big area. I since I've been here, I I sometimes am treating patients from five, five or six different counties. Right right now, now that I'm working in a hospital, I see patients from all over the all over the state because there's Philadelphia area, Pittsburgh area, and desert in between, a medical desert in between. So I, um, I've been conscious, I've had a consciousness about what's wrong with our system and uh, the fact that our whole system needs to be changed since, uh, the, mid, since I, the mid-1980s. My last year in Chicago is when I saw the light, as I like to say. <laughs> and I've always been someone whose interest is in serving patients. I've, people keep saying, you should go in administration. No, because I want to serve patients. There is a lot of need in Western PA, and it's there's a lot of need among everybody of all races, but black people, as usual, are disproportionately hurt. So, for example, Allegheny County and Philadelphia County, I didn't know this about Philadelphia County, I was going, but Allegheny County and Philadelphia County have among the worst asthma rates in the nation, okay? For white kids, what that means is one-sixth of all white children, now I'm just talking about Allegheny County, have asthma, okay? But for black children, one third of all, one in three black kids in Allegheny County has asthma. Wow, that's incredible. I mean, it reminds me of the statistic nationally about just maternal death rates, right? Where we already have like a very high basic rate for white women, but then it's three times higher for black women. Yeah, so I'm going to give you the newest figures because they're not going better, they're going worse. I have the, they just, the newest figures, the CDC just put out the newest maternal mortality rates. For 2021, 
And you you probably, I don't know if you've had heard these figures yet, but if you thought the last figures were bad. So in 2021, the overall maternal death rate for American women, maternal mortality rate per 100,000 live births was 32.9. Of the 30 richest countries in the world, that's rock bottom. Yep. But for black women, it's 69.9. That's almost 70 women per 100,000 live births. If black women, if black Americans were their own country, and there's about 45 million of us, and there's a lot of countries that size are smaller, we would be approximately number 90 on the list of the 190 countries. In this That's how far down the list we would be. So it's it's abysmal. It's outrageous. It's a travesty. It's a travesty. Yeah. In the richest country in the world. In the richest country in the world. I could give other figures, but I'll just say this. The lifespan is decreasing, okay? And it's not decreasing because people are uh, dying younger. Let me let me explain it because you hear that the, de- the, the, the lifespan has decreased from 70, roughly 79 years to 76, okay? Mm. And what that really means is they're just looking over and averages over all the lifespan from birth, how long would you expect to leave? But what live? But what's pulling down the lifespan in the United States? It's not old people dying sooner. And we'll get to maybe why old people have a little bit better than younger people, but more people dying in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. Okay. What's driving that? What's driving that? So what's driving that is one, this thing about the despair, deaths of despair. Mm-hmm. Oh, they, they can't get decent jobs. They don't see a decent future for themselves. They turn to drugs and accidentally overdose. And the other thing that's driving it is people not being able to get health care when they need it. Okay. So people delaying health care for something that would be easily treated until it's life. I And I like to talk about this in terms personally, because I have a big family and they're not, I don't come from a family of doctors. I came from a family of poor people and workers. Mm-hmm. I just had a second cousin who just died from cancer because she couldn't afford to go to the doctor and get work up because she couldn't pay that high deductible and copay. So she was waiting until she could pay. Well, she, she's dead. She just died a, a, about a week or two ago. Okay. And this is not uncommon in the United States. Okay. I had a cousin. Okay. I had a cousin. This was about five or six years ago. It was more than five or six years. It was about 10 years ago. I had a lump in my breast. She had a, she had a um, lump in her breast. I went, I had to get what's called a diagnostic mammogram. Cost almost a thousand dollars. And I hadn't paid my deductible yet. So I had to shell that out. Now I'm not, super rich, but I am a physician. So even though it was an ouch, I paid it. Okay. And I had to arrange some bills around and stuff. My cousin, just the first cousin, she she couldn't even do that ouch because she wasn't a doctor. She was an administrative assistant. So she waited till she saved up money. I'm alive. I got my atypical lesion out. She's dead. Because by the time she could go to the doctor and metastasize, this is a very common thing. And as in the rest of the country, black people are particularly affected by these high deductible insurance programs. And who gets high deductible insurance programs? People who can't afford the cushy Cadillac programs, okay? Mm-hmm. They get the, I have a brother like this. He gets the bronze program. I have 
the Cadillac program or platinum, whatever you call. So I have sciatica. He has sciatica. I can get physical therapy. He can't. And so he's much worse off than I am. I'm recovering from my sciatica. He, he's, he's not because his plan is, is bronze. It barely pays for emergencies. There's very high deductibles. And this is the myth. This is the trick around ACA because all these people are now covered, but they have high deductibles. And this is part of what's happening for a lot of people, but especially black people in Pittsburgh. They can only afford these bronze or at best silver programs. And supposedly now you have health care, you're covered. The problem is you have a really high deductible. You have a real restriction on what kind of procedures and what's covered. You have a real restriction on what doctors you can see. So if you want to see a black dentist and a black psychiatrist, this taking from an example of my patient, you got to make a choice because doctors don't pick the insurance programs. The insurance programs pick the doctors in their network. I had a patient. She had to make up her mind. Does she see the black psychiatrist or does she see the black dentist? Because we weren't in the same program. Okay. And there's a lot of studies showing that Black people tend to feel more comfortable and be more compliant when they have a, a black doctor. Okay. So right there you have a problem. But I was just looking at these figures and I was just looking at this figures. It was saying this was from a few years ago, but I'm sure it's if at least the same, if not worse. This is an article in JAMA 2020. And it says researchers found that 24.6% of black patients versus 8.6% of white patients, this is talking about cancer patients, okay, had high deductibles. And those high deductibles meant that the black patients delayed, they delayed getting prescriptions, they delayed getting treatment. Everybody who has high deductibles tends to delay getting care and treatment because you have to pay your rent, you have to eat, you have to pay your transportation, you have to take care of your children. So when you're not feeling that sick, what do you do? You wait and wait and hold off, right? And by the time you go to see a doctor, you what could very well have been something easily treated becomes a life mortality. A mortality thing. Yeah. And um I gave a talk to the Pittsburgh Black Worker Center to the people on there said, Well, you know, we have to pay I said, No, you don't. There's the only reason, and this is something Americans need to get in their head. The only reason to have deductibles and co-pays is to discourage people from getting care. And people need to Absolutely. understand. There is no reason. If you look at all the other countries that have single payer or national health care systems, they're free at the point of service. People go to the doctor, they don't pay anything, they get their care, and they come and they and then that's it. Okay. And there have been studies, it's it has been debunked. You hear these insurance companies saying, well, we have to we have to do this because people will go and overuse care if we don't charge them deductibles and we don't charge co-pays. And we have to help people have some skin in the game for their cost of their care. But that has been debunked. That has been debunked for 50 years. There's been studies for the last 50 years. And all the studies, even the studies done by insurance companies, show that the best way to get people to get preventative and primary care is to make it free at the point of service, okay? That when you have deductibles and co-pays, it causes people to delay care and not get preventive and early care. So the sole purpose of those is to discourage people from getting care so that 
you can make profit because how these companies work is they take your money, quote, to be there when you need care. But if you don't get care, that's their profit. Yep. People need to understand. No, I'm glad you bring up the profit imperative in this system because when you have that as the backdrop for how this system runs, you know, your assumptions about what could be better are kind of colored by this idea that profit needs to be a part of it. And that's not necessarily the case. I mean, it's, it certainly doesn't have to be the case. But, you know, we talk about, and you, you touched on a lot there, and thank you for that, you know, but we talk about attributing deaths to certain systems, you know, but like people not getting something taken care of as a result of the cost being prohibitive, not having enough money, not having the right insurance. I mean, those have to be deaths that are attributable to this system in many ways, you know? So like you have to say that this is, that, that this is killing people yeah. because of how we structured it. Yes. And it's estimated that nationally, I don't know if anybody has the figures locally, but nationally it's estimated that at least 68,000 people die every year because they couldn't, they, they couldn't afford care in this system. That's a lot of people that die. Yeah. I mean, that's Heinz Stadium every year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, yeah, I, I'm glad you're throwing out these statistics because it is a national travesty. And I think we just need more energy around fighting to change it because it, it doesn't have to be this way, I think is the point. You know, I want to go back to a little bit what you were talking about with the impacts on the black community. And I'm really glad that you brought this up and we're talking about it in class terms. And, you know, we live in America, so it's class terms with the evil of racism tinging those class dynamics as well. But like what specifically in your view is causing these discrepancies? So I have to put in a bigger and a wider context. So in Pittsburgh, uh, there's always been a racial determinant of of what kind of jobs one gets Mm -hmm. and what kind of jobs one gets determines what kind of insurance one gets. So traditionally, white workers have been the one who've, ones who've gotten the, the building industry's jobs, which pay a lot. The carpenters, the electricians, the, I had a nephew, he went to CCAC and took this course to be an electrician. Well, when it came time for everybody to get, I guess they have to do this kind of mentorship thing. They have to find like an apprenticeship. Apprenticeship, yes. And when it came time for the few black kids in the class, they couldn't get an apprentice. All the white kids, it was very easy. You go to these to these white electricians, because he was studying to be electricians, the, uh, the unions, and the unions, unfortunately, are the buildings trades unions are, unfor- Pittsburgh are unfortunately still very, very white. Mm-hmm. It'll make it very hard for black people to get in. And so the what happened to the black kids is they couldn't get an apprenticeship. I think one did, okay? Whereas the white kids, they just... Automatically. Yeah, automatically. So even though the black kids took the same course and got the same kind of qualifications, they didn't end up being certified. Now, you might be an electrician and you can show if somebody says, what are you doing, that you've taken the course, but you're not what's called certified. So in Pittsburgh, traditionally, the jobs black people get are jobs, service jobs in the healthcare industry. If you notice in the hospital, it's the orderlies, it's it's the techs, it's the whatever, it's the nursing assistant. Traditionally, that's the type of jobs black people get, okay? Well, those jobs are lower paying. So those lower paying jobs, if they have insurance, you're going to get, you're not going to get a Cadillac plan. You're going to get a plan that's, that's a high deductible and poor coverage. 
if you're in a buildings trades union or if you're working out on the highway, you're a construction worker. I don't know if you've noticed that I've been paying a lot of attention because they've been doing a lot of construction in Pittsburgh lately. Mm-hmm. Next time you go by a construction work site, notice who are the flag people and notice who are the people doing the buildings or doing the road work. The white people are doing the white men. I should put it this way. The white men are doing or they got the jobs that pay real high and they got the good insurance. And, and I've checked in it. And even though they're supposedly all construction workers, they're now tiered. So those are the people who get the good, cushy insurance. Then if there's no black people, the flag men are women. That's where the women are. Right. Flag stopping the traffic. But if there's black people, that's where the black people are. They're holding up the flags. And those jobs, you may say, well, they're not as much skill and thought of, but they're also more dangerous. Those are the people that have get hit by cars and yeah, get hit by cars and stuff. So they have the more dangerous jobs. Their income is still better than if they worked in the service industry. But once again, they have the less poor insurance. So now you begin to see the picture, right? Mm-hmm. And this is and this gets at how we need to work on helping people to understand that class is not just white people. Right. Class involves a whole bunch of people of different races. Well, and Pittsburgh is basically black and white. But more and more, you're seeing some Hispanic people, too, mainly from Guatemala. So what happens is they have coverage that is more restrictive, requires bigger deductibles, and more co-pays for more things. And it, what that means, what that translates into is black people in Pittsburgh delay care more than white people. Okay. And by the time they get to care, they are sicker, all right? Um, Also, because people have such low pay, frequently people are working two jobs. So when you're working two jobs, you got to rush to eat. Where do you go to eat? Fast food, yeah. Fast food is phenomenally bad for you. I, I could give a whole lecture on that. Not to mention all the stress that this environment creates. Which is, you know, kill, stress is killing people as well. Mm-hmm. And then you're stressed out because you're working two jobs. You can't take care of your kids, right? You can't go to school meetings. All these people say, oh, all the white parents are at the school, at the PT. Well, they don't call it PT, PTO, but where's the black parents? The black parents are busy working two jobs because they have to make ends meet. And then they work what I call family unfriendly jobs. And, the, and I call them that because if you need to, Call and check and see if your kid's okay at home. You can't call. You're not allowed to call out. I've had lots of patients like this. And you can't take off. I've had a parent whose kid was in the emergency room and their job threatened to fire them if they took off to go to the emergency room. And everybody's saying bad parent. I'm saying no, not bad parent. Bad system. Bad system. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. We're definitely on the same page. (laughs) Yes, yes. So um, now, because I work all over the state, I can tell you that if you go out to Fayette County or Greene County, you'll see that many of the poor white people there have the same problems that black people have in the city. But they've been propagandized so much that they don't realize that their true brothers are the black people in the city, poor black people in the city. Absolutely. In fact, this is old, but despite the fact it's old, it's still relevant. Back in the early 90s, um, we had the Ku Klux Klan move march through Pittsburgh. And um, a friend of mine who's now dead, he had this radio show on what used to be called WDUQ. And he invited this young Klansman from Fayette County to come and talk about why he was marching through the black section of Pittsburgh. This was actually the late, um, the late 80s. It was when the unemployment rate was still high from the steel mills closing. Right. 
And the unemployment rate at that point, I'm sure it sounds outrageous, but I'm sure I'm correct. For black people in Pittsburgh was 20 something percent or white people in Fayette County was 20 something percent. Oh, my God. This young guy comes on. He says, the reason why I'm marching is because we have 20 something percent unemployment. And why do we have it? Because all those black people have our jobs. And that's exactly what he said. Neither one of us have jobs. Neither one. And that was the thing that got me. Neither one. You two are brothers. You should get together and fight. But right. no, he had been convinced that the reason why he didn't have jobs was because black people had their jobs. And I don't, I think younger people nowadays, younger white people have, have start, have, a lot of them have started to get it. But there's still a lot of that out there in some of these places. Um, I could tell you sometimes things that adult the parents of patients say to me, it's there's still some of these myths and lack of understanding that it's not, it's not black people that's your problem. It's the capitalist bosses that's your problem. Absolutely. Yeah, no. And I mean, that's what it is, right? And this scapegoating, you know, with black people, with Hispanics, you know, with people that, you know, have different gender identities that we see now. I mean, this is, this creates obfuscation from the real class dynamics, but, you know, it creates something that we still have to contend with, you know, and like for everyone that thinks that liberal type saying that, you know, racism has been kind of overcome in a lot of ways, but like this is, it's still an aspect of our society that materially affects people. So we have to work to overcome that through cross-racial solidarity and organizing together and pointing out who's actually responsible for the issues that affect both communities, just the black community disproportionately. Yeah. So so, so basically, that's what the issue is in Pittsburgh. And the whole issue around more asthma, the asthma issue, why is it one-third versus one-sixth of um, why that figure is because poor people in, in Pennsylvania tend to live closer to plants that produce pollution, like Claritin, but black people even more closely. I think something like when you look at half of all poor white kids live near a plant, but something like 75, 80%, I have to go back and look it up. I did a talk on this. Something like 75, 80% of poor black kids live near some kind of plant or a super highway where there's lots of pollution or a bus depot live near places where the pollution is particularly bad. And so that's why the, we have the great disparity. And um, I was just at a meeting Thursday night uh, where um, this public health person, I don't know if you ever heard of him. What is Noble's last name? I forget his last name, but he was saying how he was talking with some people out in an area. It wasn't Claritin per se, but some Bellevue. Okay. And and he said they got the, the, the air clean, the stuff cleaned up in the plant and everything. And the asthma rate dropped by 30% just by cleaning it up. And that, so that's the issue you have locally in Pittsburgh. And in some ways, it's, it may be worse because I don't know if you know, but when I first moved here in Pittsburgh, blacks were almost 30% of Pittsburgh. Now they're almost down to 25, maybe even 24% because they've been moving them out. And this isn't just in Pittsburgh. This is around the nation, what's happening to cities. But they don't move them out to the rich, ritzy suburbs. They move them out to those poor places. When I first came here, who lived in Turtle Creek, who lived in um, Pitcairn, who lived in Wilmerding, who lived there? Poor, poor whites, poor whites. It wasn't rich whites, mm -hmm. poor whites. Now who lives there 
Four blacks. Four blacks, yeah. Okay. Um, so they're moving people out there. They're cutting off. They cut the buses out there by a third. It may even be a half at this point, by a third. So people have trouble getting back in. They're stuck out there. The air quality's bad. Clareton, the air quality's bad. The water's bad. Everything's bad. They got lead. You know, you talk about lead and flint. They had a big problem. And that's an, another issue. I don't know if you're aware. They had a big problem. Pittsburgh Water and Sewer Authority they subcontract out to some private company to clean the water mm-hmm. and they cut corners. And we had a lead problem here in Pittsburgh, in the Pittsburgh area. Oh, I believe it. I mean, all the heavy metal production that we've had yeah. historically here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And now we've got, you know, up in that area, we talk, we've been talking a lot about in the party about the, you know, shell cracker plant up in yes. Manaka, just spewing out chemicals and flaring off. And, you know, there's a lot, I mean, there's, there's a lot of poor folks of both black and white up in that area, yeah. you know. And and they tell these people, "Oh, we're going to give you jobs," but the jobs don't turn to be turn out to be as many as they think they're going to be, and they end up paying for it with their health. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing when they wanted to frack here in Pittsburgh and fracking in general in Pennsylvania. All these people are told, "You're going to get this money, you're going to get these jobs, you're going to get all this," and they don't. They end up not. They end up bringing in all these other people. A lot of temporary jobs as well, you know, like nothing permanent about some of these, especially in the fracking industry, right? Yeah. And people end up end up in poor health and then they don't have good health care coverage. And you may say, oh, because I hear sometimes some of my liberal friends say, oh, they can go on Medicaid. Well, first of all, Medicaid has been privatized in all but two states. Yeah. I'm glad you're getting to this because I did want to ask you about Medicaid and uh, the DCEs, I think, as they were formerly known. Yeah. So that's Medicare. So, but I'll just say this right quick and then I'll go ahead and transition to Medicare. It doesn't get talked about enough that Medicaid is already privatized. That's why when people have Medicaid, it says UPMC Health Plan or Gateway or so on. Those are private health insurance companies. Okay. Well, UPMC likes to say it's not private, but it functions like a private one. Mm-hmm. Aetna, if you, if you have a Medicaid car, it's, it's, it's not straight, just it's rarely straight Medicaid. Rarely. It's usually another... And um, there was a study, all of these um, states, when they committed to privatizing their Medicaid, agreed to do studies over the years to, quote, prove that this would make things more cost efficient and quality better. So guess what? Here we are. And some of these states have started privatizing 20 years ago. And it's been gradual. And then it sped up with ACA, okay, the privatization of Medicaid spread up with ACA because of the way Medicaid functions. So now, just uh, last year, Commonwealth Fund put out a study looking at the impact of the privatization of Medicaid, okay? And what they found was that in every state that privatized, the quality of health care went down while the cost to the state went up, okay? Remember that. The quality of health care went down while the cost went up. The two states with the best Medicaid programs, the highest quality and most cost efficient, are the two that didn't privatize, Connecticut. And I always, for some reason, I can never remember whether it was Kentucky or Tennessee. Okay. But I, but I know Connecticut was one. So the conclusion should be, right, that we need to get privatization out of health and make health. But you know, the, the conclusion was for, because the Commonwealth Fund is not for Medicare for all or for getting private, it was we just need to, to figure out to do it better. No. All right, so let's move on to Medicare since you mentioned that. So a quick one-on-one on Medicare. 
uh, before Medicare, seniors basically didn't have health care and, and the death rate among seniors and the mortality and morbidity. Morbidity is damage to you because you're not getting health care that makes your quality of life much worse. Mortality, of course, is death was outrageously high compared to other countries in the world. Um, in the, in the mid-1960s, um, Lyndon Johnson, LBJ, managed with the help of um, the civil rights movement um, to get Medicare, basically, and some other groups, to get Medica Medicare passed. Medicare is a single-payer health care system, tra originally, traditionally, for people over 65. And the and just to let you know, the results of doing that was a dramatic, a dramatic improvement in the health of seniors. That's part of the reason why. Remember, I was telling you the lifespan, the death is not from older, but that's part of the reason why the the uh, seniors have much better lifespans. If you look at lifespan from age sixty five on in America, it's as good as or about sixty five seventy on. It's as good as in other rich countries. And if you look at lifespans for black women from 70 on, it's as good as white women. Mm. Okay. Amazing what happens when you nationalize it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, private corporations, big businesses, and I'm American, uh, AMA, all these health insurance companies, all these things, they hate it. They did not like, and they've been trying to get inroads into Medicare from the beginning. And this is where where we have to have more of a understanding about contradictions. If you want, I'm, I'm not going to get into that terminology. <laughs> so, in the be very beginning, Medicare was still flawed because that is the sole reason why it doesn't cover eye, dental, and hearing, and why there were, although they were small in the beginning, small deductibles even to begin. Okay, there were deductibles and and copays, but they were small at that time. They've gotten bigger over time. Because that was Johnson's Faustian bargain. That was his concession to the big corporations and business and the private industry. We will leave a place where you can do something, eye, dental, and hearing. And then you can do what's called Medigap coverage to cover people's co deductibles and copays. But that wasn't enough for these companies. So they kept fighting. And Nixon, Reagan, I could go on. Clinton tried to help them. They did all kinds of things. But the person who finally figured out the way to help them to get their foot, not just in the door, but to open the door worldwide, was George Bush II. <laughs> I like to call it. In 2003, he passed a law. I get mad at myself because I always forget the name of this law. He passed a law that did two horrible things. One, it said that Medicare could no longer bargain with uh, pharmaceutical companies to mm -hmm. on the prices. They had to accept whatever price they give them for a medicine. Okay. The market rate, quote unquote, right? Market rate, yeah. And then the other thing it did was that there had been, um, Clinton had already, actually before Clinton, Reagan had already set up this part called Medicare C, where the privatization was supposed to be, but it didn't really take off. And Clinton had done some things to try to make it take off. But Bush figured out how to make it take off. He called it Medicare Advantage. And so it's advantageous, right? Right. So these insurance companies, you can sell your Medicaid Advantage plans right up front with the traditional Medicare. What we will do is we'll actually increase the deductibles for traditional Medicare to help and so that you can get a little bit of money to get yourself going. That money goes, that increase was for them, 
Okay. It was also to discourage people from going to traditional Medicare. Increase mm-hmm. deduct- deductibles, increase in co-pays. That'll discourage people and people will look at you and you can offset your deductibles and co-pays from that money that we've used to increase in traditional Medicare to give to you to offset. You see what I'm saying? So people, when you, I'm, I'm on Medicare Part A, I don't have to get on the rest of Medicare until I retire. You have to get on Medicare Part A when you turn 65. Okay. So Medicare Part A just covers hospitalization. So when I'm ready for Medicare Part B, I already have um, Medicare Advantage companies. I get mail almost every day. You know, they're like, you know, a court in me. We'll give you silver sneakers. We'll give, right. you, you know, <laughs> I'll give you $900 food check, you know. But what they don't tell you, and you don't have to pay copays and deductibles, they don't tell you that that's because the government has set it up to offset their copays and deductibles to woo you into it. And what they don't tell you is you'll, you're, you won't be able to see any doctor you want. Your network will be restricted. Whereas in, in traditional Medicare, your network is not restricted. You can see whoever you want, wherever you go all over the nation, okay? A lot of people who are in these Medicare Advantage programs go on a trip out of town, get hurt or get sick, and find they don't have any doctor they can go to because their plan doesn't cover anybody in that place out of town. Or they want to see a doctor, a black doctor once again, and they can't here in Pittsburgh because their plan is restricted. And what they don't tell you is once they've gotten rid of traditional Medicare, then they will have no reason not to have co-pays and deductibles. And, and and you look at the industry literature, they look at it like that. So anyway, these companies, and I'll talk about Medicare Advantage first, and then I'll talk some about ACO Reach. These companies, they talk to CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, under the ACA, under they created a part called CMMI, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. Mm. Normally, that word should scare you in this context, right? Yes, yes. Because normally when you go, normally when a company in the executive branch, like the Department of Labor, Department of, of Department of Energy, whatever, when you come up with a new program, you have to go before Congress, vet it before the appropriate congressional committee. They have to approve of what you're doing. But what the ACA did was the ACA said that this uh, this department, Center CMMI, the Center for Innovation, could come up with programs to, quote, make Medicare more efficient and more better and or of better quality without ever going to Congress and vetting the programs they were introducing. And if they liked how the programs were going, they could get, set them going without ever talking to Congress. OK, so wow. this is how Congress was not aware of what was going on. So anyway, during the well, before we get to Trump, so these Medicare Advantage insurance companies said to the Bush administration, "Well, this is what we need." And the Bush administration agreed: traditional Medicare, ninety-eight cents of every dollar that you put into it goes directly to your health care. Ninety-eight cents of every dollar, okay? And the money for Medicare comes from on your check. You look at your check. There's money that goes to Social Security, FICA, and there's money that goes to Medicare. So traditionally, 98 cents of every, and that fund is called the Medicare Trust Fund. So over the years, the Medicare Trust Fund has accumulated something like $30 trillion. Over the 60 years it's been in, and the doc, you go to the doctor or you go get a procedure, they bill it directly, they pay. Simple as that. Right. Don't need a lot. Okay, so these companies said, well, 
we can't survive on 98 cents going to patient of every dollar going to patient care. We need a little bit more than that for our profit. So CMMI, or I, I'm just going to say Health and Human Services because they're the big, they do the final decision for what happens. Agreed. Okay. What we will do is you only have to spend 85 cents of every dollar on patient care. You can keep the other 15% for whatever you feel you need. Okay. And the way they do it is in traditional Medicare with fee for service and with Medicare Advantage. And also that's, just, and this is important to remember because this is what's going to happen with ACO reach uh, DCA, DCs. In the way they get paid is by something called capitation. Capitation means every so often you get a set amount of money, all right? And that so that 85% of that set amount of money has to be spent for patient care. The other 15% you can keep for what you want. So, but that would be bad enough. But then what happened was these companies said, but we have a problem here. If it's a relatively healthy senior, we might be able to, we will make a profit if you're letting us keep 15 cents out of 15% of the capitation. But if there's somebody real sick, we still might not make a profit. So what they agreed, this is how you came up with coding, is okay, we'll code every condition and the severity of every condition. And you submit the code, you do a code profile. Everybody who signs up with you every year, you do a code profile on them. And that will determine your capitation. So I'm what you call all people, when you get in your 60s, everybody has something, okay? So I'm what you call a healthy, relatively healthy senior. I have controlled hypertension. I have controlled asthma. And I have prediabetes, okay? So my codes will look a certain way, okay? And they'll get, I'm going to use some figures. These are not exactly the figures, but these were the figures at one time. So they'll get, for the year, they'll get $8,000 for me for the year to spend. And out of that $8,000, they only have, they they can keep $1,200 for themselves, right? And they decide, they have to spend the rest on healthcare, mammograms, all that stuff. But if I've, let's say you're a senior and you have malignant hypertension, which means your blood pressure is uncontrolled, bouncing all over the place. You have diabetes with retinopathy because diabetes Okay, that's one of the things it does. It puts messes up your vision. You have severe asthma and you have to go to and you have some other problems too. Okay. So your codes, your codes will be different than mine because they'll reflect not only your illness but the severity. So they would get thirty-two thousand a dollar for you for you. Mm. Okay. Got it? So this is what these companies have been doing, and it's now been shown and it was a big hoopla. Yeah, the New York Times had a big article about it. So what they've been doing is, first of all, they try to only pick the healthy seniors, okay? Sure. And then rate them harder? And then they rate, then they falsely rate them higher, code them higher. I mean, I, I was going to say unbelievable, but it's not. They fraudulently code them. Yeah. I'm going to my doctor and they're billing that I have. And to make sure it gets, because some doctors have a conscience and don't want to do that, these private firms are, are now, they have these. And I can tell you as a doctor, they tell the doctor, oh, you don't have to sit there and do the coding. You just do your history and you just do your little workup and we'll put it in the codes for you and we'll do the billing for you. So because doctors have been complaining that it's taking up all their time. So they put the codes up. So they'll make it look like I have diabetic retinopathy. They'll make it look like I have 
uncontrolled hypertension so they can get that much bigger amount of money. And that's what they've been doing. I mean, on top of, you know, ruining the healthcare system that we had for seniors here, which was producing good outcomes for years, it's just given them the ability to, I mean, correct me if I'm misunderstanding, but this is just defrauding every American taxpayer. Yes. Yes. It's defrauding taxpayers. And, and on top of that, they've been, if you get really sick, if you are really legitimately sick, then they try to pan you back off into traditional Medicare because they don't really want to pay for you. And they can't make money or as much money on you. Yeah. Well, they, they, yeah. So they want you to go back to traditional Medicare, which is problematic in most states. It's, uh, but that would take too long to explain. It's not easy to get from back to traditional Medicare for Medicare Advantage. Okay. Um, so there's some suspicion that people have died behind this. Okay. Now, it turns out that every year they've gotten better and better at defrauding the Medicare trust fund. So the inspector general came out with a report last year that said that in 2021, the Medicare Advantage companies, most of them were involved in this, defrauded the Medicare trust fund of $12 billion. That was just last year alone. But they've been defrauding more, and it goes back, I forget the amounts for each year. They've been defrauding more and more every year. Okay. And that if they keep up at this rate, they will have depleted the fund before 2030. Okay. Now, so you got that backdrop, right? Okay. Now, along comes the Trump administration. Private equity and, and venture capitalists have been watching what's been going on. And they said, boy, oh, let me just backtrack a little bit and say this. They have been making such a killing that Humana just announced last year that they are closing out all their employee insurance and just concentrating on Medicare health insurance. It's a cash cow. Because it's a cash cow. They actually said that. I couldn't believe that. They actually said that in their literature. Yes. They're not scared. Yes. All right. Now, then along comes Trump during his his thing. And these and these um and at that point, about 45% of seniors were in Medicare Advantage. So these Private equity firms looked and they said, wow, these people are making a killing. We want to get on some of that too. You know, and they calculated out, oh, this what, so many trillions of dollars in the Medicare fund. Look, we could get we could get the rest of it. So they approached Trump, and that's how you came up with direct contracting. And direct contracting, instead of a health insurance company being the middleman, you don't even have to do, have anything to do at all with health. If you're a private equity firm, you can be the middleman in someone's health care. And and so anybody could be who wants to make money could get in there. And so a, a, a private equity firm could be deciding. They could be doing the authorization. They could be limiting. They could be determining who you see. Okay. This is not, this is not a health insurance company doing, you know what I mean by prior authorization, deciding yeah. what health care you get. This is somebody who has absolutely no ex interest in health, no expertise in health, who just wants to make a buck. Okay. And then they convinced the Trump administration that they should be allowed to keep not 15% and have to spend 85% on health care, but 40% of the capitation and only have to spend 60% on health care. Okay. So by the time Trump got his program up and started, it was um, close to the end of his administration. But the thought was, in his second term, he would really get going with this, right? These companies would really get going with it. And many of these um, Medicare Advantage companies were thinking of having their private equity division so they could get in on that too. Biden came in 
And you stopped it, right? No. I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> no, he wouldn't stop it either. He didn't do one darn thing. So a group of us health justice people, some of the people, some of the more liberal, were shocked that he didn't stop. But we weren't. We knew. Right. We knew it's coming. Okay. So we've really, we've had some impact, but not enough. So we've really fought and agitated and tried to educate the public. And the end result was that the first thing they did was they just changed the name. I, they must think we're really stupid. They changed yeah. it to ACO Reach. Like, oh, we said, no, no, it's still the same thing. It's the same program, right. So as things stand now, what they've done is they said, okay, well, maybe 40% is a little bit too high. We'll back it down to 25. It's, 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 so it's between, it's not back down to the 50, but it's 25. But still, I don't want these guys having any of my money. I don't want them having Absolutely. 25% of my taxpayer dollars for their prop, you know, for, I want all of my, I want that 98% going to my healthcare. And they've said that they're not letting any more private equity firms join other than what has joined now. However, those that have already gotten in the door, they can get as many people as they want. Yeah, they're getting their 40%, right? Well, no, they backed it down to 25%. Oh, that's still okay. bad. That's still bad. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, I, I don't want them having any. Absolutely. They shouldn't be in there at all. Private equity in healthcare. I mean, yeah. So they're still there. No, the ones who got their foot in the door, they're there. The ones who didn't make it in before they shut, and they only shut the door because we made such a fuss. But, and they pretended that, that solved the problem, but no, it doesn't because the ones that are there are still there. Now, this is the other bad thing about these, this ACO reach used to be direct contracting. With Medicare Advantage, people, quote, join by choice. Now, never mind that they're deluded and wooed and told a bunch of fraudulent stuff, but still seniors sign up. With the ACO reach um, slash direct contracting, you don't sign up yourself. How you get in it, and you may not even know you're in it, how you get in it is these private equity firms are buying up doctors' practices like mad. At this point, Private equity firms own almost two-thirds of all doctors. That doctor with the shingle, that's a thing of the past. Doctors are now owned, okay? They buy them up, and then the doctor, and then Biden changes. So you do, Trump, you didn't even get a letter telling you something was different. Biden, you do get a letter, but we've seen the letters. So we've been collecting them. You have no idea. It just says, to make your health care better, something like this, because I've seen it, your doctor has agreed to go into Oak Street Health or I forget the name of sorry, Cloverleaf or the Village Doctor Program. And this will help your doctor provide better care for you. If you have a concern or an issue, you can call or do not want your doctor to be in this program. But it doesn't say anything about private equity, about all this stuff I just told you. It just tells you that your doctor is putting you into this pro, And your doctor isn't because your doctor, it's, it's that company that owns your doctor that's putting you in. So that's where we are. So right now we're fighting to get rid of it completely. We need more of the public involved because we need people to push back. And we need people to understand that, yes, right now it looks like Medicare Advantage is better because they're not charging you much in terms of co-pays, but that's because their co-pays and deductibles are being financed by the government so that by, by increasing the co-pays and deductibles on Medicare so that you and other means so that you, because the government's pushing everybody into that. Yeah, this free system, we're getting coerced. Yes, but the problem is that we're not going to have a system where everybody has health care until we get this privatization out. Yeah. 
we have a system that focuses on providing people with health care from cradle to grave, free at the point of service. And as I said, you know, at least a single payer, but if not, but even better would be a, a national health program. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just that story, Claire, I mean, for me personally, it's just kind of like a microcosm of ultimately what led me to calling myself a socialist, because that is a story of cross-party collaboration with the capitalist class to extract profits predicated on people's health. And, you know, again, just perpetuating this system that kills people and just abuses the taxpayers and abuses our elderly folks, et cetera, et cetera. We just don't care about people at all. So maybe just on that note, to kind of close out a little bit, maybe we could talk about, I think there's some kind of gut reaction with some folks that might be listening about like the prospect of socialism. Maybe just we can talk about clearing up some like misconceptions of what socialism would mean for people's health, both in like the healthcare system front, but also just other aspects of life that, you know, are detrimentally affected, let's say, under capitalism. Yeah. So what Americans have been propagized into believing is that private is better. But it's not just in the healthcare system and the education system and the transportation system. I could go on and on. There's increasing bodies of evidence that privatization is not better. It makes things worse. Because when when the, when you have a small group of people whose only goal is to make as much profit as they can, they start cutting corners and they and they and they do not have your best interest of anything. They are just out to make money any way they can get it. And if it means decreasing quality, if it means and how do they get that money? They decrease quality and they also start setting up tiers of people who should have and shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. Then they increase the have nots over the haves. Okay. If we really want everybody to have decent housing, good education, health care, if we want a good transportation system, we really need to have those systems be based on what people's needs are and have systems that focus on meeting those needs, not focus on giving a small group of people as much money as they want and then hoping that, that some good trickles down to them because good does not trickle down to the rest of us. So one of the things we're doing in light of that, because you had asked me when we were talking privately, what are some of the things we're doing is we're trying to push of the bills in Congress for Medicare for, for Medicare for all, quote, improve Medicare for all. Jayapal has a better bill than Sanders, okay? But even her bill is flawed. So we're trying to push her to, to have a section in her bill. And we're probably not, I don't going to win, but we still need to fight it. And we're asking up people to fight it, to uh, take the profit out, out of, because there's in her bill, there's still these for-profit hospitals, nursing homes, and other institutions, which even if you have a single-payer plan, they're still skimming off the system. So one of the things we're pushing is to ban for-profit institutions in healthcare. Okay. Absolutely. Now, now we know that doing this is, is going to be hard, but this the case we want to make to people is we shouldn't back down. We should say this is one of the reasons why we need to get rid of capitalization. Capitalism. Yes. Okay. Because the problem with capitalism is it's about a few greedy people rushing to see how much of the wealth and resources they can get and let the chips fall with where they may otherwise. What people need to understand is that what socialism is about is people getting together and planning what they think, feel they need and how to get their needs met. 
and having a government that represents the people and works to get those needs met. And that's what we need to help people understand. And as long as we have a system in which the government is trying to help a few greedy people, I call them leech pigs, but never mind. <laughs> that's an apt description. Yes. I so, like that. Yeah. So we will never be able to get equitable education, equitable jobs, equitable health care for anybody, racially or any other group. We won't be able to get it because the whole system is based on helping a few greedy people. And if people don't believe it, there was a study done back some years ago by Princeton and the University of Illinois in which they looked over, it was like 10 or 20 years, they looked at all the bills that had been passed. And what they discovered was that if there was a difference between what the bottom 80% wanted and the top 5% wanted, the Congress always went with what the top 5% wanted, okay? Not with what the bottom 80%. And I shouldn't say wanted, what the bottom 80% needed, okay? Yeah. So we, right now, our system is based on catering to the interest, and it's not even needs, interest of a small percentage, even when it hurts the needs of the majority of us. But if you had a socialist system, then we would be about meeting the needs of the great majority, even though it might bring tears to the eyes of that small, greedy, we call them capitalist oligarchy, but you can call them leech pigs too. I like that, <laughs> I like that so, as well. You can, you know, so because they don't need, you don't need three houses and two yachts and well, five houses and two yachts. You don't need all that. And it's not making the world a better place for other people. No. And when we get into, uh, Climate change, it's actively contributing to making it much worse. In fact, it could be killing us. It could be yeah. the end of us. Uh, so, so, so that's what we have to help people to see. And we have to help people to see through all the propaganda of things like private, what do they call it, private-public partnership. Mm -hmm. We have to help them to understand that that has made things worse, not better. And we can show them concretely. Uh, there's lots of examples. I can give all the, I've given all the healthcare examples. Okay. Well, not all. I could give you more, but. But at a basic level, those institutions serve essentially to maintain the status quo with maybe like a nicer presentation and a front, but they're, they're there not to change the system radically. And the system needs to be changed if we're going to get rid of problems like homelessness, if they're not going to get even worse, if we're going to really truly give health care to everybody, if we're going to get decent public education, if we're going to have a decent transportation system decent, you know, a decent life for everybody. I, I was at a thing the other day and what I said to somebody, look at it, look at it this way. If, oh, this is what I said. Somebody said, somebody, not the Chinese, some, some, uh, some organization like a Gallup-like organization did a poll of all these people in all these different countries to see if they felt their country was de democratic. And to their surprise, only 49% of Americans felt their country was truly democratic. 90% of Chinese did. So someone went and asked, I don't know, they asked a group of people, how could you possibly think your country, China, is, is democratic? And I said, I think well, it was a Harvard study. Sorry to interrupt you, but I think it was a Harvard study from a couple of years ago. But yeah. Okay. Yeah. So they asked them, how could you possibly, you know, you're authoritarian. You only have one party. You can't vote for a group. You can't vote to change parties. And what was said was, well, in the United States, you can vote to change parties, 
but you can't make the policy change to get your needs met. In China, we don't. We only have one party. But look, we asked to get rid of poverty. They got rid of severe poverty. Yeah. We asked to clean up the air in these big cities, and they haven't completely cleaned up, but they cleaned it up dramatically. We're working on it. Yep. Yeah. We asked for public transportation. We have fantastic public tr- transportation all over the country. So we feel that although we can't vote for a different party, we can make a change in policy. We as the people. It's like, why would you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so that's we have to get people to think about what does it, what does it mean? What does democracy mean? Right. Like to vote in kind of like a different representative of the oligarchy every four years. Mm-hmm. isn't democracy and we need to radically change our understanding of of that mm-hmm. it's people the bulk of the people getting what they feel they're getting their needs met and other things so i ended that talk that when i was talking to people by saying this so if you had a truly democratic system which would be socialist you could go to your government and say we need to have it so that there's so people only have to work one job okay to be financially sound, can have childcare without going broke while they're working. They can have, they can get their healthcare taken care of. Um, just go to the doctor. They know their kids are all, every kid is good in good education. We might even have, oh, what I said was, now that we have this artificial, artificial intelligence and all this automation, hey, instead of having people working two jobs at, 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 sub, at sub living wages, People, everybody could work 30, maybe even 20 hours a week and spend the rest of the time painting and dancing. And being human. Being human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> having fun, running, and have a wonderful life. Everybody. Absolutely. Okay? So, and, but, but that's, that's the difference. Yeah. No, that's, that's very well said. And I do appreciate that you brought up the fact that some of these societal advancements and technological advancement aren't inherently bad. It's just the context in which they're being applied. Are they being applied for extraction of profits or for giving people more time to lead fulfilling, wholesome lives? But thank you for that. And I think that's a really important conversation that everybody needs to be having to kind of demystify what democracy, socialism actually means, because it's been purposely mystified by the folks that don't want to see it happen, right? And that's that top 1%, right? But in any case... Claire, I did want to give you the opportunity to let folks know, you know, how they can get involved in the fight. We need all hands on deck at this moment, you know, with these healthcare crises, the climate crisis, et cetera, et cetera. But specifically with healthcare, how can they get involved and help you out and other folks like you? So there's two, there's a couple of things you can do. One, you can go to a website called protectmedicare.net, all small letters. Protect Medicare is one word, .net, not .com, because there's a there's a fake site called .com, protectmedicare.net. It has petitions. It has organizational letters. has all kinds of things you can do to push both Congress, the president, and uh, Health and Human Services, CMMI, to get rid of, uh, the, to stop the privatization of Medicare and um, to ex- expand Medicare to cover everyone from cradle to grave and, and so on. The other thing you can do is you can con- you need to constantly ask your Congress people why aren't you fighting for this? Okay, um, you need to come if you hear there's a demonstration for 
you need to talk to family and friends about this. You need to help them understand. Now that you understand, you don't need deductibles. People don't have it in other countries. And we need to, if you hear there's a demonstration going on about this, come to it. Okay. Um, or if you hear or uh, get involved, if you hear there's a town hall, come to that. And then really put pressure uh, on these Congress people. They should not get, they should hear all the time when you, see them or hear them or write to them. Why aren't you pushing for this? And that's what we need to do right now. Because yeah, we're not ready for the socialist revolution yet. Yeah. <laughs> but but we can do these things so far. Agitate, okay. educate, and organize, right? That's yeah. the that's the stage we're at. Well, thank you so much. Again, we're with Dr. Claire Cohen with National Single Payer, among many other great organizations doing the work. But just thank you so much for joining us on Pittsburgh Liberation Radio. We definitely hope to see you soon. You know, I know you've been at a lot of our events and we've worked together in the past and we hope to, you know, continue to do that and work together even harder on this. But thank you for coming again and thank you for all that you do. Sure. Thank you. For our part, you know, this podcast is again brought to you by the working class organizers with the Pittsburgh branch of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. You can reach out to us directly and get subscribed to our mailing list by sending us an email at pslpittsburgh at gmail.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at pslpittsburgh. We do have several upcoming events that I'd like to announce. On Saturday, April 22nd, we're going to be having a May Day banner making party. That's at 6 p.m. at the Pittsburgh Liberation Center. This will be in preparation for our International Workers' Day, May Day Workers' Unite and Rally March on Monday, May 1st at 6.30 at the East Liberty Presbyterian Church. On May 11th, we'll be hosting a film viewing of the movie 10,000 Black Men Named George, and that'll be at the Pittsburgh Liberation Center as well at 6 p.m., and then finally, on May 20th, Saturday, we'll have a picket to get PNC to stop banking the bomb and divest from nuclear armaments. And that'll be from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the Bloomfield PNC on Liberty Ave. Thank you again, Claire. And as always, thank you for listening. And we hope to see you on the streets or at one of our upcoming events. Solidarity.